episode of You Might Love This, the show and tell podcast. Uh, my name's Max. I'm Cassie. Uh, hello and welcome. Welcome again. to the show. Uh, we are happy to be here with you today, just like always. And today we have this uh, really fantastic guest who we've spoken with already on an episode that did not air of our previous podcast project. She is somebody who we met through the through Twitter uh, operating for our old show. And she has a lot of really cool interests, uh, specifically one that she really wants to share with us today. Please welcome Marilyn to the show. Hi. Welcome, Thanks Marilyn. for having me on. It's lovely having you on again. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so please, Marilyn, tell us what you are interested in. I am interested in cemeteries and cemetery preservation. Yeah. Yay. Yay. I'm so excited to learn about this. So I think that my interests really start with being the daughter of my mother. She is also very fascinated by cemeteries and um, her interests come from mostly macabre territory. She kind of likes the darker things in life and she likes- You don't say. No. (laughs) Oddly enough, right? You would have never guessed. (laughs) And then um, she also is very interested in the hobby of urban exploration, which uh, somebody who was born in her era, I don't think is as um, prevalent as it is for people our age. No, that's a young people thing. Yeah. So she combined the two and has always been interested in cemeteries. And she had me at kind of a young age. So as a young mother, she thought, I'm going to take my daughter out with me while I do the things that I want to do. I'm not going to stop living my life. Cool. And I'm glad that she did that because uh, it definitely helped form a lot of my interest. Yeah. So is this like, were you all, were you going out with her when you were still like, like, is this like baby Bjorn wearing urban exploration? Like she like swaddled you up and just carried you with her? Or was this like waited until you were able to move around and walk on your own and that kind of thing? So I don't necessarily remember well, yeah. Being a baby, like in, in a papoose with my mother <laughs> going through fields and abandoned farmhouse and stuff. But there are pictures of us in big open fields. And I'm absolutely a little baby, you know, six months to two years old. And then she took a little bit of a break mm-hmm. from doing the more dangerous things. But she would always still take me out to big open fields that used to be farmlands to have picnics, even as early as three, four, five years old. And we were always going to cemeteries to explore or, like I said, have picnics. Um, that mm-hmm. was a big thing that we still do together today is have picnics in cemeteries. Nice. But there are <laughs> pictures of me from very little, no hair, not able to walk or talk yet, all the way up into when my grandmother adopted me, where my mother and I are together at abandonments or cemeteries. Amazing. I just want to say me and... Our friend Alicia, who's been on uh, our previous podcast, when we first met working at the same job, she was actually my trainer. Um, she would invite me to go eat lunch at the cemetery next door. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it seemed totally, you know, not a big deal. Like, I I, I was totally down for it. And we would get looks sometimes when there'd be people walking around the cemetery. But my thought was just like, A... It's peaceful. B, there are lots of birds because they're very undisturbed there. Um, and C, these people need somebody to visit them. So <laughs> just absolutely, having, we're just having a, a little snack with uh, those who have passed. So I totally jive with that. Yeah, I love and that. It, it is also just interesting to, you know, read the 
the tombstones and, you know, learn a little little tidbit of different people who've existed. When I grew up, I was down the street from, well, not really down the street. I mean, the street that I was on was a, was dead end and mm-hmm. there was a tree line with a small tunnel that had been worn through. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of that tunnel was, I mean, it was technically a street on like, it was like another street. It wasn't actually connected. You couldn't like drive through that. Um, but right on the other side of that was a um, was an elderly care home. Mm-hmm. And right on the other side of that, in two different directions, were two different um, cemeteries. Ooh, that's not the best uh, thing. <laughs> well, I guess not. But also, like, I think they were. Like I think a- at least one of them they were like incorporated in some way, where it was like you could you could have this nice plot, and it had a really beautiful view and all yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, when you're that old and, you know, in a nursing home, it's kind of like, this is next. Here it is. <laughs> um, but what I was saying is that, that one of them was a church cemetery and it had some really beautiful mm. memorials and headstones in it that mm-hmm. were just really cool to walk through all the time. Yeah. Anyway. That's, that sounds really cool. And I think that for the, the like the old folks home and the care facility, I think that um, in the past 150, 200 years, the mentality on cemeteries and uh, death in general has really shifted to be a more negative thing. Mm-hmm. So maybe when that old folks home was built and started to be utilized, you know, people would see that as um, not as much of a grim reminder, not like the uh, the reaper is standing there next to them. Mm-hmm. But also, I wonder if it was an ease of access thing. Like, let's, mm, that's you know, what I was thinking. right yeah. in the backyard, you know, we don't have to go far. We already know that I've accepted this is the end of my time. And now mm-hmm. I know this beautiful place where I've been able to go for walks with my walker and my little tennis balls on the feet there um, is where I will end up next. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So you spent a lot of time with your mom. This was like a bonding thing, spending all this time in, in these uh, urban places and cemeteries and uh, what all. When did you like when do you when did you sort of become cognizant of what you all were doing? Do you have any like really early memories? Obviously, when you're like, you know, a baby or one or two years old, you're not really forming those kind of lifelong memories. But do you have any like especially standout ones from an early age that make you think of that time? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say I was probably eight or nine, somewhere in that age. And um, my mom threw me in the backseat of the car and we drove quite a bit further than we normally would for these types of adventures. And she took me to a cemetery that had a lot of um, headstones and monument pieces that weren't what I was used to because in Texas, most of the modern burial plots are with just the little plaques that go in the ground. Hmm. There's not a lot of standing up headstones or monuments or stuff. Oh, that's Um, interesting. That was definitely more popular in Texas in the 1800s. And then around that same time, when I was, I believe it was third grade in Texas, you take Texas history as part of your history courses in elementary school. Mm -hmm. And I had a teacher, Miss Griffiths, shout out. I don't know why (laughs) or if she's listening, but in the rare chance, she was such a great teacher. And she chose to take the Texas history, quote unquote, section of third grade history class Mm -hmm. and turn it into local history. So we learned specifically about Farmer's Branch, Texas, which is where I was going to school. Mm -hmm. And the Farmer's Branch Cemetery, which was actually called the Keenan Cemetery, is the oldest cemetery in Dallas County. Wow. And she gave us lessons on the people that were important that are buried there. Wow. And showed us old school slideshow of 
actual pictures of the cemeteries. Wow. And then gave us a pamphlet and said, hey, kids, if you're interested in learning more, ask your parents. And I gave that to my mom. And my mom said, I know exactly where this is. And that weekend, we went and we explored the Keenan Cemetery, the oldest cemetery in Dallas County. Wow, that's so cool. Have you been back there since? I have. Actually, every time I go back to visit my grandmother or my mother, I make it a point to go visit the Keenan Cemetery in Farmer's Branch. Nice. Well, that's that's pretty interesting. Have you ever have you noticed it like changing at all, or the way cemetery? You mentioned how a lot of the headstones are just sort of plaques now, of uh, you know, horizontal. Um, do you remember? Is is that sort of lined up with the way your early childhood memories are, or is that something that you're observing now very recently? So I think that I put together the fact that the older stones were the standing up ones and the newer stones and the newer graveyards were the horizontal plaques in the ground. I would say within the last couple of years, uh, when I really got into the actual preservation aspect of it, uh, before then, I was always just interested in the ones that were standing up because they were cool. They were tall. They were spooky. You know, some of them had Mm -hmm. moss on them. Some of them were faded. A lot of them are made out of different kinds of stone. So I ended up paying more attention to those and automatically was just paying more attention to the Texas graves that were more prevalent in the 1930s and before. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what were the um, the gravestones, older times, what were they made out of? But you said multiple different kinds of stone. Yeah, and it's regional um, very often. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, here where I am in this particular part of central Colorado, we have a lot of um, red rock quarries around us. So a lot of the stones, the headstones out here are made out of that, which is a horrible material. It's it's kind of like a sandstone almost. So it just tumbles away over time. Yep. Um, And then we have a lot of granite out here in the Rocky Mountains. And so a lot of the more wealthy folks or Mm -hmm. uh, people who planned had death care for a longer period of time got to save up for the granite ones. Yeah. So that's what's more common out here in Texas. I think it was a lot of the ones that I recall seeing that were older were oddly enough wood and strange white iron oh which I think is a zinc iron combo I'm not exactly sure what they're made out of it is in my field guide there's a great field guide that I have walks you through cemetery symbolism and Mm -hmm. um I should say more modern cemetery symbolism. It starts in like the 1700s. And then it also takes you through the composition of the actual gravestones and monuments and stuff. Really cool. Yeah. Adding a little geology into this uh, episode (laughs) for those of you listening who are interested in the locale based resources in terms of like what they use for gravestones in Colorado, the Rocky Mountains are made out of granite primarily that's like gen- generally they're they're made out of granite so that's where you get your granite headstones which are more durable as well as more difficult or i guess they're harder to cut like literally harder physically so that's probably why they're more expensive and they're pretty i mean of mm-hmm. course you can push up prices for something that's more beautiful whereas like central colorado or i guess the the plains of colorado you're gonna have a lot of sandstones and limestones from the mid-interior seaway which was a seaway an ocean it, it basically connected the arctic area ocean to the Gulf of Mexico back in the Cretaceous during the last time period of the dinosaurs. So if you're thinking specific dinosaurs when T-Rex and 
uh, triceratops were around and a lot of the duckbills. There was a huge ocean that ex- like extended through the Midwest of the United States. And so you get a lot of those ocean deposits. You also get a lot of a lot of the red sandstones in Colorado are a result of the granites eroding as the Rocky Mountains are pushing up and forming around huh. that time period. So you have a lot of the, the erosion from the mountains happening and all those materials end up washing to the coastlines of this mid-interior seaway. So that's where you get a lot of the, yeah, all that red rock in Colorado. The red comes from feldspar, which is a pink mineral that's found in granites. So whenever you look at a granite, like a real granite, it's going to have a pink hue to it. That's what makes up the a lot of the red rock in Colorado. And then like, for example, in Indiana, where I went to university, that area is a lot of limestone from way before the dinosaurs. So there's a lot of old gravestones that are made out of the limestone. And in fact, my geology 101 class at Indiana University, thank you, Jim Brophy, Dr. Jim Brophy, for I think our first field trip for that class, he walked us over to one of the on-campus graveyards. Actually, I sent you the pictures, Marilyn, Yeah, of that little chapel and graveyard. He took us there to compare limestone gravestones versus granite gravestones because they are both in that graveyard. It was so cool. (laughs) Yeah. Strikes me that limestone would be not a great thing to build a gravestone out of, right? So So there are... That is true. So uh, one benefit is that in that particular area, it is very plentiful. Limestone is all over the area. So if you're wanting to make it out of other stuff, you might have to import it from other locations. And then also it is easier to carve Mm. um, because it's it's softer. The Mm -hmm. only main downside is that it does dissolve in rain and, you know, just the elements. It's made out of calcium carbonate, which reacts with acid and dissolves into carbon dioxide. So that's why a lot of limestone graves and buildings in general look very old and creepy and Victorian. Because they're like melting. Because they're melting. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, it's interesting. And um, I imagine these are the kind of things that you think about when you're in the field of cemetery preservation. Absolutely. Um, but, but I think that cemetery preservation is the kind of thing that probably sounds intuitive if you've never heard about it, but I'm sure you could give us some more insight on what it actually means and and what it all entails. So for me, the historical aspect of cemeteries is important um, as well as the artistic and uh, you mentioned Mm. Victorian uh, architecture. I'm obsessed with Victorian architecture. Yes. So I think that uh, cemeteries are by definition historical and they often contain the bodies and the memorials of people who were involved in historic events. Mm -hmm. Even if they weren't world historic events necessarily, the founders of everybody's city is buried somewhere in a cool Mm -hmm. cemetery in their city. Um, I think that, you know, we walk by historic buildings and there's statues and there's cannons and parks around here, for instance. Um, There's plaques on posts and stuff to let you know what's going on. And cemeteries kind of serve as an open air history museum Mm. and an art museum um, with the sculptures and the carvings on the stones. And they also serve as parks 
Um, and sometimes even nature preserves yes. because there's not a lot of, you know, foot traffic, unnecessary foot traffic in there as there mm-hmm. would be in some of like hiking trail parks and stuff. So preserving them for future generations to experience the same great things, the open air museum quality that I enjoy is important. Mm-hmm. And another aspect of the preservation is that city care or church care of the cemetery is typically now anyway automated with sprinklers and the sprinklers running in the same spot for 20 years will cut a headstone in half whoa that makes sense and the mowers will go out there and the guys are just you know they've probably got 15 parks they have to mow two are cemeteries the rest are public parks they can't be there when little jimmy's soccer game is going on so it's very important that they mow quickly Mm-hmm. And then they get to their next destination. So a lot of time mowers will accidentally knock over the older stones. Oh, no. And preservation societies are typically independent chapters of historical societies or uh, city management that are always volunteer groups that just go out and provide additional care and maintenance to the grounds mm-hmm. um, to repair what the city has done, but also to go above and beyond what the city can do with time and mm-hmm. funding constraints. So um, even the act of creating a rubbing on an older headstone, especially one made of sandstone or lime, can cause damage to it over time if it's a popular one that everybody's taking a rubbing of. Mm-hmm. Oh, and a rubbing is uh, when you put wax paper or a thicker paper and use chalk to lightly rub the gravestone and it puts the imprint of the inscription or the uh, symbol onto that wax paper or your thicker canvas paper. Who does that? Uh, so I used to do that when I was a teenager. Okay. <laughs> I was, um, I don't want to say like I, I was the goth girl at school, but I was definitely. <laughs> it's okay. I it's was, all right. <laughs> I was more alternative than your average Texan or Colorado okay, girl sure. at the time. And I spent time in cemeteries my entire life, including my teenage years. And, and I thought it was cool to take photographs of the wilting wreaths around the recently buried gravestones and couple that with a rubbing on my wall, you know, above my uh, Barbie head that was hanging from a string or something. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I, I think that for famous headstones, like for Marilyn Monroe or um, oh, okay, yeah, 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 things like that, people probably do rubbings quite often because it's a way to take a piece of that history home with you, and it's not hmm. just a photograph of you throwing up the peace sign, you know, making a kissy face at mm-hmm. the grave. You've got an actual like tangible object with you wow, when you okay. have done your cemetery tourism. Um, so this must have been a pretty natural transition for you to get into this field of. Uh, uh, cemetery pres- preservation? You know, I'd never even thought of cemetery preservation as a thing when I was a kid. Obviously, I was just enjoying the park itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to what is called the Frankward Cemetery in an area of a Dallas suburb that I used to hang out with my friends a lot in. And actually, that cemetery is fairly old as well. Um, it was from 1862, and it was established by a Masonic Lodge. So a lot of Freemasons Ooh. are buried there. Um, the f- same Freemasons also built the church that is on that property, and that church was built in 1858, wow. which for Texas is ancient. What kind of church yeah. is it? Is it Catholic or Protestant? Mm, I'm assuming it was Catholic. Okay. But I've never been inside of there. But based on like the imagery that was around the cemetery and stuff, there's a lot of Mm -hmm. like Mother Marys and baby Jesuses and stuff. That leads me to believe it was probably Catholic. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was visiting there. I would say I was a tween, 11, 12, maybe 13. And there was a group of old ladies. And I was like, man, are these, is this me in 60 years? You know, what are these people doing? <laughs> and they're, they've got buckets and brushes and they've got their hair back in bandanas and they've got the dishwashing gloves on. And so I went over and I was like, what are you guys doing? And they explained to me that they were part of the preservation society for that Ooh. particular cemetery. And they go out there a couple times a year and throw away the old flowers or the, you know, rain soaked teddy bears that have been left behind and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that they, will also bring in um, like a repair kit, like a mason's repair kit and kind of try to smooth over cracks and stuff that have been left behind by weed whackers or the the water and stuff. And that was the first time that I really even considered that there was somebody other than, you know, the government coming out and doing anything with the cemeteries. And I think that they were a volunteer group that started at the church, but gained more members over time. I asked about being a member and they're like, I'm sorry, you're way too young. You have to be at least 18. <laughs> Wait, how old were you? Um, I was probably, I would say 12, maybe 11, okay. maybe 13. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so that cool. was the first time I really even thought about the preservation aspect of the hobby that I had always enjoyed. Yeah. Have you ever uh, heard of a metal cemetery called the Bose Holy Trinity in uh, Brooklyn, New York City? No. Metal cemetery? Like it's all metal metal. headstones? Yeah. So I found out about it. uh, You know, I'm sure you follow Caitlin Doty on YouTube. Yeah. She has an episode where she, it's called the Bose Metal Cemetery, I think. And she visits it and it's a cemetery that was basically a relocated cemetery because New York City at the time that it was put together was growing like a lot population wise and they needed more space for it to bury people. So they move a bunch of graves to this new plot of land and in effort to kind of eradicate class differences between those who are buried, they wanted everybody to kind of be on an even economic playing field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They decided that all of the gravestones had to be metal. And so they're made out of various types of metal, like tin or copper. Um, but the cool thing about it, since metal does warp over time, mm-hmm. is that, I mean, it's it, it's cool, but also kind of sad, but also kind of almost a, a work of art in its own right. The gravestones and also the metal statues of like the Virgin Mary and Jesus and stuff are warping and, you know, bending over and and some are even falling apart, unfortunately. Um, there have been gravestones made out of copper that have been uh, stolen because, you know, uh, copper is worth money. Mm-hmm. So they, they do try to um, work on, like, security. Like, they got security cameras and stuff. But apparently it's a really cool place to visit um, just to see, like, this <laughs> time in history, this decision of what this graveyard was going to be like. But also kind of sad in that it's it's hard to preserve these gravestones. Yeah, so I was just wondering if if you knew about that. I'm going to have to read more about that and check out her video because that sounds so fascinating. I can't imagine what the the visuals are of an all metal cemetery, especially when you've got the different kinds of metals that are going to warp and age in different ways. Like I'm sure mm-hmm. it's evolving into its own kind of artistic um the earth is healing itself, if you will, kind of. Yeah scene that sounds really cool i know that 
out here in Colorado, we have a lot of what is it? I want, I said it white iron earlier, but I think it's actually considered white bronze. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a lot of those out here and they seem to be fairly well holding up. But our climate is so different from what it would be out in New York uh, since yeah. we're so dry out here. Yeah. But the thing that I love about the white bronze stones specifically is that they were made to be customizable. So you would pick your shell if you want like an obelisk shape, you would pick, mm-hmm. I want that. And then there would be holes where you could insert in bronze plaques that would say, you know, a Bible verse or have um, kind of like a acid in, engraving of your family or something like that on there. Mm-hmm. So there was a couple of different companies. It was very popular in the late 1800s through 1940, where you could order it, mm-hmm. maybe even been out of New York, one of the companies, and you could absolutely customize it. So they would have a huge booklet. And I've been looking on eBay and at antique sales for at least 10 years to see if I could find a copy of the salesman's booklet that shows Mm -hmm. all the different options you could have for customizing this one particular brand of headstone. And it seems so fascinating to me that um, people were really thinking outside of the box as far as creating something that would last longer, Mm -hmm. be less expensive and be more customizable than a rock or stone tomb. I'm looking at photos of this and it's quite interesting. I mean, I just I just Googled white bronze grave markers. Mm -hmm. It's so fascinating that they're really trying to, well, at least in these photos, that they're really trying to replicate the look of a limestone gravestone. Yes. Yeah, they look like yeah. rock. They do. They so really interesting. do. And yeah. especially when they've been more weathered in the rain and, and the sun and stuff over the years, they take on more and more of those almost stone qualities. So it yeah. fits in very well to a typical modern American cemetery. Yeah. But I mean, if if I was looking at this from even a short distance, I would probably think it was a limestone gravestone. There have been times when I've walked up to one and tap, tap, tapped it with my finger to see if it made that metal ring because I was like, <laughs> is that one of those? Or is that just wow. a really nice, you know, stone one? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow, that's pretty incredible. So, um, it it, it sounds like you uh, have have really gotten into this this extru- this this side of the 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 social uh, organizations that spring up around death. Um, and I'm curious, like, what kind of what kind of involvement have you had in these sort of preservation practices through local or or otherwise, uh, uh, you know, efforts? Sure. So shortly after I moved to Colorado, um, my aunt and I would go out to the Crystal Valley Cemetery, which out of all the places I've been in the world is one of my favorite cemeteries because it feels so much like home and backyard to me. It's my um, nostalgia cemetery, I guess. And we would help every Sunday after church, a group of gals would go out there and we would join them and just kind of clean up the grounds a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then through them, I actually met the Evergreen Cemetery Historical Preservation Society, which is the group that I volunteer with currently. And they do night photography sessions or they have in the past. It's it's not currently something that they're doing because of mm-hmm. world events, but they do night photography sessions where you get a group, you at sundown go around and you teach people the history of the two big cemeteries here in the area of Colorado that I live in. Mm-hmm. And then after that, when the sun is fully down or at that golden hour that all the people are 
able to kind of split off away from the tour group, if you will, and take pictures. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really great way for them to pass on the message that the cemetery is not a scary place and that it's yeah. an important place to preserve for future generations. Yeah. And then um, with them as well, they're always looking for volunteers. So I have tried to, as often as I can, get out with them and just do general cleanup. Mm -hmm. And then every third Thursday of the month, whoever can comes and meets them at the gates at 10 in the morning and they do actual repair work where you go in with the um, masonry, repair the caulking and the uh, you adjust the sprinkler heads and they're in partnership with the city, but they're not sanctioned by the city to do this work. Mm -hmm. And you, um, you know, prop up the ones with wood and nails. Um, And then you also, something that I have really enjoyed doing is going through the older parts of the cemetery and Mm -hmm. looking for soft ground, which is where a grave is collapsing in. And you put a sign, just a little sign that says, don't, don't play here. (laughs) The ground (laughs) is soft. Um, Several years ago, before I was even born, I think in the late seventies or early eighties, this particular cemetery had a group of children who had gone off while their parents were mourning and they were playing in the older section of the cemetery and they were playing on soft ground, but they were also climbing from what I understand (gasps) on the monuments and one caved in on that soft ground and crushed this poor child's leg. (gasps) So he survived. And for all I know, he's a, you know, a grown human being with a crushed leg, but it, he had like total shattering of the lower part of his leg and had to go to the hospital. Oh my God. The family, even though it wasn't the popular thing to do at the time, the family still tried to sue the cemetery. Oh, no. And I think that they lost their case because their children were unattended in the cemetery. And and that's not what they're there for. It's not a playground. Uh, You can have your children there and you guys can enjoy the cemetery, but please don't climb on the monuments. Yeah. So that's, I think, something that really spawned them to be more aware of soft ground which is kind of what I enjoy doing because it gives me an excuse to really walk around instead of just sticking to one grave the entire day mm-hmm. and put my little signs down that say caution, soft ground. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was there anything that was like really surprising to you when you started doing this work that you would have thought would be something that more people in the public would know or should know um, other than this soft ground phenomenon? Hmm, that's a good question. I guess... I think that a big part of it is the history aspect. I think that my perception, obviously, of what the public knows about cemeteries is is going to be a little skewed because I've always been <laughs> sure. in the cemetery. But most people, I think, think they're spooky mm-hmm. and <laughs> that you only go there for a funeral and that they're sad. And I think that the Victorians especially really had the right idea where you go and you picnic and you mm-hmm. um, enjoy it as a public space in a park. Yeah. And I think if more people did that, and and worked on shifting their perspective mm-hmm. to it being a public park and like I said earlier like an open air museum yeah. that the overall perception would change and more people would think to be more careful because yes, absolutely. I w- would have never considered that the mowers are knocking over the gravestones like why would you not just go a little bit slower right yeah or that they would set up sprinklers and let them run in the exact same spot for 30 years straight and <laughs> cut these gravestones in half with erosion yeah um because things outside are already eroding enough on their own they don't need us coming out there and squirting them with water (laughs) yeah (laughs) um marilyn what are your opinions on natural burial grounds i think that that is great and that if we could 
move forward to more Earth-friendly burial, Mm -hmm. I would be 110% on board for that to be more common practice. Mm -hmm. I know that um, religion gets in the way a lot of times with that kind of stuff and Mm. modern perception of uh, needing to preserve. Yes. But yeah. I don't feel like we need any of that. And I feel like if you can make sure it's not going to get into my drinking water, mm-hmm. that we should really move towards that. We have the old cemeteries. They're great places to go. But moving forward, we should be more earth conscious. I agree with you. And for our listeners, um, oh, Marilyn, are you part of the Order of the Good Death? I am. Me too. <laughs> if our listeners are interested in natural burials, which also focus not only on the natural burial ground, but also natural burial of the body. So not going through the embalming or cremating process. Definitely subscribe to Caitlin Doty's uh, Ask a Mortician YouTube page. There's also a website you should visit called Order of the Good Death. I think it's .com or .org. And there is a lot of information on green burial. And also, I believe they have a list or they have a a page there where you can search for natural burial grounds in your area. So we've got a number here in Washington state, and I'm sure there are some in Colorado. I have a natural burial site in mind for myself that's located in Washington that doubles as a nature preserve. It's cool. Yes. And you don't, you don't get embalmed. You just get wrapped in a shroud or get put in a cardboard box and you can or cannot choose to have some sort of marker, but you're not going to have a, a huge... Although I think tombstones are gorgeous and I love reading them. From a sustainability standpoint, the tombstone is, I think, the least... Leave no trace. Yeah. The, the tombstone <laughs> is like exactly. the most no trace thing. I mean, if you're if you're getting inside a really ornate painted box with like artificial cloth lining and mm-hmm. metal chunks sticking out all over it, that's that's a huge ecological footprint. I wouldn't I mean, certainly your burial choice is your burial choice and it's very personal, but you know, if you're looking at it from that perspective, it's a it's a really it's a really huge impact on the surrounding environment. We've been watching a lot of true crime shows lately <laughs> yeah. and we were watching one, I forget which it was, but it basically oh there's the staircase the staircase, there's the staircase yeah. on netflix it was like 17 years later after a burial and they were exhuming the body to uh, for another autopsy i believe the, ca- the casket was it looked like it had gone in the ground yesterday it was untouched. yeah and apparently the body was perfectly preserved it just seems so unnatural i can't imagine what chemicals are required and are then getting into the ground and slowly making their way into our drinking water mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. oceans mm-hmm. to even just preserve the wood on the outside of the casket yeah let alone now, all the other stuff that goes involved into pr- preservation yes the chemicals are carcinogenic in fact People who do own bombing are have a higher risk of cancer because mm-hmm. they're dealing with carcinogenic chemicals. Yeah, and it's a if you read Caitlin Doty's book, it describes it in detail. I think it's also possibly in stiff the type of stuff that is done to your body if you are embalmed and you know traditional you know wake and all that. It's it's kind of terrifying what they do to your body. It's just, I mean, and and it's, you know, I'm not judging people who have a traditional burial, but, and, and it just says something about our culture's views on what death is and what it means. And 
our acceptance of it when we try and dress up a dead body to look as if it's alive. Sorry, I've gone on a soapbox. No, that's that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's an important question. And I think that if there are people out there who are, you know, finding out that they might enjoy cemeteries, it would be a good perspective for them to think about the past and the present and the future and all that mm-hmm. is involved in that. So I think it's a it's a good point to bring up the future of cemeteries and how it yeah. could ideally look for the health of mankind. Yeah. And I assume that you've you have some uh, pretty unique perspective on that uh, given your history of uh, uh, of involvement with cemeteries. I suppose that I have a perspective that not every man on the street would have regarding how it has looked in the past, how it looks today, and how I would like for it to look in the future, especially with working here in Colorado on the preservation, um, because a lot of our sites, you know, date back to the 1700s, as opposed to Texas, when I first kind of got fascinated by it, where the mid 1800s is real old. Um, Out here, we've got some that's 1700s. And uh, there are some spots as well that are designated Native American spots Mm -hmm. where uh, bodies have been buried. And their their style was obviously so much different than what we as um, (laughs) West Westernized Americans are doing. So it's another thing, too, that I think being in Colorado has really helped shift my perspective on all of that is seeing the what little there is of known Native American areas and how they took care of it and how it's a lot more like what we were discussing with the natural burial. Mm -hmm. Well, and also uh, if we're going to talk about marginalized groups of people who have suffered at the hands of white European uh, colonists. There's also the whole topic of graveyards for black citizens, black people, mm-hmm. and also enslaved peoples, and how there are many grave sites that have been basically forgotten or just there, destroyed. There are people living in here, living here in the United States today, who could, could never find their ancestors, mm-hmm. who have no hope of finding their ancestors' mm-hmm. remains, which is just part of, I mean, part and parcel of the whole uh, oppression of uh, of black and native populations that's been going on since uh, all these white people landed here in, yeah. mm-hmm. in this most 18th century. Well, and in fact, when we were, I think it was our last episode, we were talking about, uh, we were talking about insane asylums and Kina told us that there was a black graveyard that yeah. had been basically destroyed for a highway. Yeah. <laughs> I've crazy seen stuff like that. in documentaries that I've watched about uh, cemeteries, I've seen where something very specific to that where they are building a road and they um, will not worry about what's underneath. They won't worry about um, replacing or moving the markers if there were Mm -hmm. markers. But there's one, and gosh, I wish I remember where it was now that we're talking about this, but there is literally a monument in the middle of the road where the road uh, makes a a circle around this very small monument. If you aren't paying attention at night and you're sleepy or something, you will hit it. But it's to say, hey, there's a whole bunch of people buried underneath the street that you're driving on right now. Um, Most of them were in a potter's field or an African-American cemetery. Uh, Here you go. Have fun. Drive away. Oh my gosh. But that's unfortunately very, very common, especially in the books and the documentaries that I've watched where they're trying to locate that history and they're trying to help uh, bring that history forward or preserve what little they can where they just, you know, uh, put 
put up a parking lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I believe I heard that the, with the Tulsa race riots, I forget the year. I should know the year. I believe researchers are currently looking for a mass burial site um, from all the murders that took place against Black people there. But they're basically doing, I think it's tomography uh, of the ground to try and see if there's like an abnormality, a large abnormality that would uh, coincide with the mass burial of a certain amount of people. Is that where yeah, you there's... shoot lasers into the ground or? I believe it's probably a method similar to radar. Okay. Where you're dealing with um, signals that are bouncing off of various surfaces and coming back to you and it measures the time it takes for it to come back which would uh, vary depending on the material that it's hitting. Got it. That makes sense. I hope they're able to find it. Yeah, me too. That would be monumental. Very important too. On a different topic, do you have a favorite cemetery in mind that tops them all? Mm, okay. So of the cemeteries that I have actually been to, um, I think that the either St. Louis number one or Lafayette Cemetery number one in New Orleans were my favorite because they had so many wide examples of different grave architecture mm -hmm. as well as had the um, oh why can't I think the name of it the the grave wall ovens which I thought was very fascinating and Wait, what are these so it's common in southern swamplands, especially in New Orleans, um, but they also do them all over the world. It's big in Mexico as well, but it's a big mm -hmm. brick or stone wall that you slide the casket into with the body. And because of the heat and the humidity and the, um, the environmental funk of living on that part of the planet, mm -hmm. it dissolves the person and the casket into a drippy soup that then goes into a like a rain gutter type system in the back of the wall and kind of slowly but surely trickles it down and out into a the earth where it could be dispersed naturally. Wow. Fascinating. <laughs> and they're they're all over in New Orleans. Um, I've wanted to visit some of the older cemeteries in Mexico where they utilize that technology, I guess I would call it, as well. But um, it's a really cool way to reuse land because those mm -hmm. cemeteries are so old after a certain number of years 20 years 50 years however long it takes you can open up that spot move that person's name plaque kind of up in the wall and stick another person in there so that one area can eventually uh you know entomb the memory of a mm -hmm. hundred plus people that's wow. amazing that's super cool Wow. And so does this process also dissolve the bones? It does not. Okay. I asked my tour guide what they did with the bones, as well as uh -huh. the metal handles on the caskets and stuff. And she said that they give the family the opportunity to have them if they want them, which I thought was mm -hmm. really cool. Yeah. But if the family's like, Meh, not like me, where I would totally want grandma's skull, then yeah. they... <laughs> put them in a small burial plot with other people. So it goes into like this mixed bag mm -hmm. burial section that's basically right behind the wall. Interesting. Do, do, do they offer the option of grinding the bones up into a powder? I didn't ask about that, but I would hope that they would offer you the option of, of giving you the remains in a not, uh, I don't want to say not solid, but a not 
just like a big bone form. Um, there <laughs> Not was, a full skeleton. Yeah, exactly. There was a building on site that had a smokestack on it, and I didn't ask what that was for. I assumed that it was probably mm. where they housed the tractors or whatever, but I wonder if that is what that area was for, for like milling the the final remains. If it was a smokestack, I, I suspect that they might have a cremation device in there, but after cremation, a cremators put the remains, which include fragments of bone because the, the fire isn't enough to like disintegrate a bone into powder. They actually put the material into a thing called the cremulator, which is basically like a kind of like a um, stone polisher in a way. But instead of polishing the bones, it just grinds them up. Um, and then that's what you get as ashes. So I'm not quite sure if that would require a smokestack. Um, maybe. Maybe but for ventilation, that's... especially if you're, you don't want to breathe in bone powder if you're the one that's running the, the bone tumbler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering. So... I'm just I'm just very fascinated by this uh, body oven thing that you just uh, process that you just told us about. That's so sustainable. <laughs> you would think that that would maybe. Well, I guess you know in other regions of America it wouldn't work where it's not as humid. But and you know it might seem to our listeners kind of gross to think of you know liquefied bodies, but that's actually just what happens if you're buried too. Eventually, your body will liquefy it just happens it's just a part of the the decomposition process you're uh, you got you got i think it's enzymes in your body that um basically break down your cells and all the liquids come out so it's just natural yeah. something to be freaked out over but well neat so um it is we've already talked about a little bit about caitlin dowdy and the order of the good death but i'm wondering if you have any other resources for folks that are interested in this kind of work the, the presentation preservation of cemeteries that that if they were interested in in that work that they could you know access these resources and learn more about it absolutely so the way that I got hooked up with the group that does the tours the photography and the preservation is simply googling my city's name historic society mm -hmm. and from there the particular group that I work with is based out of the historic society. However, you can also like if you have a cemetery that you love that you walk your dog in or that, you know, your great aunt is buried in and you think I would like to volunteer my time there to help them keep this place beautiful. You can also look, uh, for instance, Evergreen Cemetery Preservation Society. If you just Google either your city or your favorite cemetery and preservation society, you'll most likely get a link to a Facebook page because there are these small chapters. They're not web designers building beautiful websites or anything, but that would at least give you the start to discuss with who is ever running that Facebook page or who's ever running that website to say, hey, I would like to volunteer my time. How can I do it? Um, my group puts a post out, hey, we need you on the Facebook page and their um, actual physical pegboard in the uh, historic society downtown here. This is, hey, we need you. So if you've got a cute little history museum that you want to pop your head in, if they have a corkboard, you might be able to find out how to help preserve your cemeteries on that corkboard too, if you want to go technology free. Cool. Um, I was just wondering, in Colorado, because of the uh, the warm, dry weather, well, maybe not warm, but the dry, high altitude weather, are there any movements to 
create burial grounds that have native vegetation instead of the the usual grass? So I have not heard of that particularly, but I would imagine that with the... um, the current moving forward of of the death positive movement, as well as Colorado, especially being a place that really is interested in keeping our lands thriving, that there's probably something out there. Um, A lot of the places that I visited out in the more northeast hills already are arid. They don't grow grass. They don't put sprinklers. There's Mm -hmm. the yucca plants and some cactuses and some scrub brush and that's it. It's the rocks. Wow. Wow. So especially in the more wild west, uh, silver rush and gold rush areas of Colorado, I think that's something that they have always done um, because it's hard to get water up there. And Mm -hmm. well, it it was anyway. Um, And now that the cemeteries are established, they're not going to try to plant grass up there, at least I would hope not, because it's going to change the look and the environment of what we know as the Silver Rush cemeteries. Yeah. Also, I would like to ask as a last question, what would you like for your burial? For me, I would like to be atomized and um, just dispersed into whatever green space or puff of air that I decide I fall in love with. I don't have a current plan for myself. I don't have a pre-need plan, um, but it is something as I get older, which is ridiculous to say because I'm not in my early 30s. So I hopefully, knock on wood, don't have to really think about it for a while, but I would like to have something (laughs) in place uh, for myself. And I think that if I can find, um, gosh, what is the name of that machine where they basically hydroblast your body apart? (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's what I want. It's um, it's the more green alternative to cremation. Okay. And it's very popular at veterinary clinics. Oh, and fascinating. There are places in California, Washington, maybe Oregon, and one place I think kind of on the East Coast, or maybe it's Ohio or something. Not full east, but there's four places now where it's legal and accepted. And um, Caitlin is actually a, a champion for it. Wow. And hopefully we get it in all 50 states. But if we don't, then I guess I would just go the route of uh, cremation, which I know isn't the best mm-hmm. for the air, but I don't want my body to um, take up any physical space. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Well, it's been such a pleasure learning about all of this from you, Marilyn. It's been such a pleasure to be able to talk about about it and uh, not get strange looks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you'll find that we have a very accepting audience for this kind of thing, yes. <laughs> kind of built in uh, through by virtue of what we used to do on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, this is the part of the show now where we turn to what you have to say, listener. And the question that Keena brought to us was whether or not you've had any experience with the Kirkbride Asylum in your area. It's a type of asylum that uh, is likely to exist uh, or have existed at some point in your state's history. And this is what you had to say. Austin over Discord says the Springbrook State Hospital in Catonsville would have been 10 minutes away from where I grew up in Maryland. And Laura Ray adds, also apparently, Springbrook had experiments involving patients being treated for various mental illnesses with LSD. Interesting. Mm. Seth says, oh, I know one of these, the Traverse City State Hospital in Traverse City, Michigan. The TCSH was built with the idea that beautiful surroundings would help residents, so it's quite pretty. This next one is 
an amazing coincidence. Our friend Esther grew up in the same area as the one that Kina actually talked about in the episode. And when we talked to her about that, it turns out that the coincidence got even greater because Esther had a professor at UCA, which was apparently a neighboring school to Kina's, who printed out Kina's thesis last year and made her class discuss parts of it as like a as like an assignment. Nat says there's one in Independence, Iowa that was built in 1873 to relieve overcrowding at a general hospital in the area. It was designed by a guy who also built other mental institutions throughout the Midwest. It's still used as a mental health care facility and it contains a museum teaching about the hospital's history. Hmm. So they've preserved various stuff like the cemetery, lobotomy equipment, and hydrotherapy tubs that's really interesting that's a bunch of stuff that doesn't get used anymore for human rights reasons right but it is there for educational purposes gotta remember this is the stuff we that's what museums are for Bree sent in central state hospital in indianapolis indiana not too far from where you lived a little while ago She quotes from the Wikipedia, the more ornate of the two massive buildings came to be known as the Seven Steeples. This building, which housed female patients, was designed using the Kirkbride plan for mental health care facilities. Cool. Wow. And also, Bree says, holy heck, this is a ton of locations. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, she's found the uh, Kirkbride plan uh, page on Wikipedia. Our friend Maddie says, looks like Illinois had one in Anna, which I can only assume is that Anna. I don't know what they're talking about when they say that, Anna, but uh, okay. But it is is Anna State Hospital. And we found out that there is one in Washington State, the Eastern State Hospital. It was Mm. established in 1891. I'm looking on the Wikipedia, by the way. And it is in Medical Lake, Washington, which is just south west of Spokane, which is very, very eastern Washington. Washington. Uh, the original building was a Kirkbride plan, and the current building has a f- similar floor plan with male and female wings extending out from the main building. So I guess it's been redesigned at some point. Yeah, it kind of looks like what happened with the one in Arkansas, where they took away all the cool roof things, and now it's just flat. <laughs> Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, history. Maybe it's, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, why? Maybe they were hard to maintain. I don't know. I think they look cool. The turrets and the steeply rooftops. Turrets. Makes it look kind of castle-like, which some people might not like. I think it looks cool. Probably good for birds. Yeah. Birds like to hang out on it. Probably a lot of animals hung out inside of those roofs. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe at fire hazard too. Extra wood. I was just thinking about how, you know, a lot of the times you'll hear about old buildings that burned down. Burned down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> it just wasn't, they just didn't know how to do that. Anyway, that's it. Okay. I am so, I've never heard anybody else talk about Kirkbrides. Oh my God, I'm fangirling. Okay, hang on. Oh, yeah? tell, tell, us about, tell, us. tell us about your history with, with Kirkbrides. I have to uh, wave myself off. Okay. So with the urban exploration aspect of my, oh, my yeah. hobbies, um, Kirkbrides are always, uh, in my mind, the holy grail because I've never had any anywhere near me. And um, the Kirkbride model of the way that you, or plan, I believe it's called, of the way that you lay out your asylum is so mm-hmm. fascinating to me that that um, they really wanted to get that bright light and, and, and good air in there for those people who are, are suffering and, and need that psychiatric help. Mm-hmm. And um, the movie Session 9 is filmed in a Kirkbride, which I believe is no longer standing it it uh was abandoned for a while and and a homeless encampment inside caught on fire 
Oh, no. But I just I love Kirkbrides. I love the buildings. The ones that are still standing are are amazing and beautiful. And, and a lot of them are being turned into like high dollar classy apartments and stuff. But wow. Um, is there one in uh, do you know if there's one located in Colorado? I do not believe that there is. And if there is, it's okay. not been standing. And since I've uh lived here okay but i i'm trying to think if i can remember approximately how many they built mm-hmm. i think it was like two dozen maybe okay but they were mostly on the east coast and a very small smattering on the west coast so okay. the, the central plains areas didn't really i don't think get any kirk rides so colorado probably didn't the four corners area nevada uh texas probably didn't oklahoma probably didn't even all the way up into uh what's that place right next uh montana even up into Montana, I don't think that they got them, but the East Coast huh. and a small sprinkling on the West Coast. I, I love Kirkbrides. I love the thought of <laughs> building a beautiful building to help people. Um, mm-hmm. There was a yeah. little bit of shuttering going on in there, and especially when we got into like the 50s, the 60s, and 70s, there was probably abuse, but mm-hmm. the actual architecture of the Kirkbride buildings is what I mm-hmm. love. Well, great. Well, do you have a question for our audience, uh, Marilyn? And we'll have them uh, submit their answers to us on Twitter and such to read for the next episode. Do you have a favorite cemetery in your area? And if not, have you considered visiting the oldest cemetery in your area? All right. Cool. So send your answers to that either to at you might love th1 on Twitter or to you might love this podcast, the group on Facebook. Uh, you can also contact us by email at you might love this podcast at gmail.com uh, or visit our website, uh, which you can find links to on Twitter, on the Facebook group, and all of that. Thanks again for visiting with us today, Marilyn. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And if you want me to ever come back and geek out about other things, I would be happy to do so. You guys are such a pleasure to talk to. I'm Aww. sure we'll have you again yes, at some point. we'd love you back. If people want to follow you, where online might they be able to find you? I am active on one social media platform, and that is Twitter. And my Twitter handle is at Scary Marilyn with two N's, M-A-R-I-L-Y-N-N. <laughs> Cool. Uh, Well, that's going to do it for us this evening on You Might Love This. Before we go, I'd like to say thanks to our dear friend, Leandra. Thanks Thanks for for the the hand. hand. And, uh, you know, we'll uh, bid you welcome again next time. Uh, As always, my name is Max. I'm Cassie. Oh, and I'm Marilyn. (laughs) And you might love this. Lovely. The Scavengers Network. Creator-driven. Community-focused. Treasured content. Do you wish your life was a little more spooky? Well, what the heck? Hello, everyone. My name is Jordan Reed. And I'm Lindsay Reed. And this is Spooky Spouses, a podcast about ghosts and stuff. Tall tales. Although we went to dinner last night and you told the lady on our wait list that our name was Cradge. (laughs) 
Was it Cratch? <laughs> Creepy cryptids. There. Or Pizza Rat. Pizza Rat is pizza and a rat. Yeah, it's double delicious. He's a rat with pizza. It's like, yeah. oh man. Thank God there hasn't been a corn dog rat. Or you'd be eating that I rat. Think, you know what? I think, in my defense, if someone was like, you ate a live rat, I'd say, well, it was holding a perfectly good corn dog. <laughs> Monstrous goofs. Well, you could probably just put a video because, like, our tombstones will probably just be, like, videos replaying. They'll be, like, memes or oh gifts. Yeah. Our tombstones will probably just be gifts. That's, that's one of the coolest things you've ever said. A spooky spot. <laughs> Sorry, there's something stuck in my throat that whole time. Spooky Spouses, a part of the Scavengers Network and Viddy Space. New episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts.